Welcome to the Different People Podcast, where we explore inclusion, diversity, and belonging in conversations about the often untold experiences of different people. These conversations are candid, spontaneous, and can sometimes be difficult, yet they are necessary and critical to the healthy functioning of communities, organizations, and society as a whole. My name is Lisa Schmidt. I'm a leadership coach, a senior consultant in organizational development, and a professional speaker. And my name is Dr. Raymond Abdurrahman. I'm a clinical and consulting psychologist, an expert in diversity and inclusion, executive coach, and a professional speaker as well. And we are your hosts. So Raymond, let's talk a bit about who we are from a family background perspective, because you are an immigrant. I am, I am a child of, yeah, I am a child of immigrants. And I think that informs the kind of people that we've become. So I'd like to ask you a question uh, around what it's meant to you to be in Canada, having been born somewhere else, but maybe more importantly, what were the values that your family brought with them that in a way shape the person that you've become? And, and maybe we can focus on professionally, the person you became professionally. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. So I think my identity, like I forget, like I know culturally who I am. I very much, self, very much see myself as a Canadian, but I also very much see myself as a Muslim, as somebody with values or a cultural aspect that comes from Zanzibar. Those are all, to me, I don't know any other way to be Canadian. Uh, to me, that is that is who I am, and that is my identity as a Canadian. Yeah. But I think when people look at you, they make certain assumptions about who you are. So I often forget that I'm an immigrant, but I'm often reminded by people that I am. Okay. So and tell me more you know, about that. In what in what ways are you reminded? Well, I think when people see your last name or your or your skin color, or your face, you know that people talk to you kind of like you're not from here. I'm reminded of a very funny story, actually. I uh, grew up working in my father's store, which which I think that's a whole different story. But I grew up working in my father's store, and there's a gentleman who came in, and he was in a bit of a rush. And he said, hey, uh, I'm looking for something for to take to a potluck. And then he looked at me, and I was talking to the same way that I was talking to you now, or that I'm talking to you now. And he, and he looked at me like I wouldn't know what the word potluck meant. And before I could say anything, he started to describe to me what a potluck was. And he said, you know, a potluck is, you know, when people bring food, each, if somebody brings a dish to like a house for a party. And I looked at him kind of confused and I said, huh, potluck, pot. And he started to coach me. Yeah, potluck, potluck. And I was playing along pot, pot, potluck, potluck. That's right, potluck. And I said, you know, I think I heard about it on the boat over. And so, and he <laughs> right. said, you did? And then it took him about a minute before he realized I was pulling his leg and was frustrated and didn't know what to make of that. So I think people, people constantly remind you that you're not local. Uh, and that's a very frustrating experience. But also I think um, when people recognize that you're a professional and people assume that the story of you getting there was a sign that Canada and our Western society is all inclusive and people have 
the same amount of opportunities. You know, this is a land of opportunity, a multicultural country. And C, we've let people of color and immigrants become professionals. And they don't tend to recognize the very difficult story and the layers of privilege we've had to work to obtain and the barriers that we've needed to break through, which are significantly greater than any anybody else might be if they were a white person, that they would have had the privilege not to do that. And so people don't know that story. People see you as a professional, but they don't understand what it took for you to become that professional. Um, yeah. And, and I know for you, one of the things that we've talked about previously is that you're a PhD clinical and consulting psychologist. And this, in my view, is very clearly a professional profession, if, if I can put those two words together. And part of your experience, I would imagine, and I guess I, I, I don't know, so I'm going to ask you, were there times in which you had to be I guess, more white in order to fit in, in order to meet criteria, in order to be employable? I, I'm not even sure how to ask the question because it feels like an awkward question to ask. Well, I'm reminded of a question. I, I, when I was just close to getting my PhD, when I was close to finishing my PhD and being registered, there was a period of about six months to a year where you have to be supervised. And so there's this job that came up with an insurance company headed by another fellow psychologist who had invited me in for an interview, which I was very excited to get. And one of the questions was, can you please tell me why your people are so violent and aggressive? And that was, a, that was an actual interview question by a fellow psychologist. And so, yes, there are times where you need to, you need to kind of act a certain way. Like I have a colleague in the United States who's often said, professional culture is white culture you know, right. about what we consider to be professional. Um, you know, if you head to any other part of the world, you know, what's considered professional and what you disclose about yourself, you know, depends on, and pe people know a lot more about you. People know about your family. People ask about your family. Here professionally, you don't ask about your family. You put aside a lot of pieces. You know, who do you live with? Like, if, for example, I think a lot of people who come from cultural communities who might live with parents would not want to disclose that you know, in a professional workspace, how close they are, what they do to engage with family, the fact that they might see family more often is put aside. For me personally, if I've needed to pray, I always make sure I close the door. Now, over time, I've gained some comfort, but I have my own practice. And so people know that I pray, but it's because I'm the boss there in some way. And I can have that privilege. But for the longest time, when I wasn't to have to hide that or put that aside, there's a joke that goes around uh, amongst Muslims, you know, amidst the COVID crisis right now, you know, this whole epidemic around toilet paper, many people in the Eastern world are like, what are you talking about? We don't, we use toilet paper, but it's not your primary. We use water and, you know, there's a bidet and stuff like that. And so Muslims will often carry around a little bottle of water when they go to the washroom and having to hide that at work, right. you right. know, it's, it's a funny story. Uh, it's an awkward story. Even, even as we talk about it now, you know, I feel a little bit shy to talk about it, but, but therein, therein, therein lies the truth is that we hide elements of who we are culturally when we are at work, uh, we can't bring our whole selves to work. There's yeah, and it's so life. ironic to me that there's these things we need to be secretive about, or as you're describing, and yet millions and millions and millions of people have these practices, and yes. yet we act as if it's, you know, either shameful or wrong, uh, mm -hmm. even though it's a largely uh, it's it's a practice that really is is very different from Western ideas of what it means to yes. 
And the interesting thing clean, so to speak. That's right. And it's interesting, but what do we consider Western? Right. You know, how many Canadians, how many Americans, how many people from the Western world are using this practice and consider themselves to be Western? Yeah. And so, I mean, even when we use those terms of what we, that differentiate, you know, Eastern and Western, myself included, speak to our impression that there's a certain way of being if you live in a certain part of the world, that if you want to be progressive, you've got to only use toilet paper. Right. (laughs) And isn't it interesting that toilet paper is bleached white? (laughs) That's right. Interesting. Interesting. So listen, I wanted to talk a bit about um, going back to where we started, the experience of either being an immigrant or having immigrant parents and the impact of that on the professional lives that we live. And I'll start by saying that You know, my parents immigrated from Germany as teenagers after the Second World War and had very many challenges as both as immigrants do uh, in uprooting your entire life and coming to a different country, but also because they came from Germany and the prevailing feeling about Germans after, of course, the Second World War. But one of the things that was of huge value or huge value in my family, I have two older brothers and then there's me. My parents knew uh, deep in their heart of hearts that the only way that they could be successful was to put their three kids through university, something that they were not able to do growing up uh, in their time and in their families, uh, given the resources and other constraints. So both my brothers and I, we've all graduated from McGill University in Montreal, and that was a real Interestingly, from, apart from the accomplishment that each of my brothers and I have, an accomplishment for my parents, that they had succeeded at doing something that they might not have been able to do in their own country. Can you talk, Raymond, about the, you know, is there any similarity in your experience with your family around that particular aspect of being an immigrant? Uh, absolutely. But before I do that, let me ask you a question. How did you feel carrying that with you, knowing that your parents went through, went through such great lengths to send you to McGill. How'd you feel going to school? So that's a really great question. I think the difference uh, for me personally is that my brothers are quite a bit older than me. So they were both children to younger parents, but also my parents were closer to their immigration experience. And they were, I would call them my parents working class at that time. They came over, they did not have uh, much of an education just enough, like kind of a technical education, the way it works in Germany. And so it was very important for them to have their sons enter professions. So my brother, Bernie, became an engineer, and my brother, Steve, he did a degree in finance. So I came around about 10 years after that, and I had more leeway. I, could, I had more choice in what I wanted to do professionally, but it was pretty clear that the way that we did things in my family was that you get a degree from McGill. And it was a source of accomplishment for my parents because, A, they did not have the opportunities according to their experience or their socioeconomic status, but they also, in a way, wanted to show uh, who they were as citizens, that they were making a contribution to this country by educating their children and making sure that we became productive members of society. I didn't feel it as a pressure necessarily, but I did feel that I would have been letting my parents down if I, in fact, did not graduate from university. Now, for many of us, what it was that we chose to study could often be an issue for our parents who wanted us to be successful 
And my degree is in biochemistry and nuclear physics, which people look at me and say like, what? Because uh, I've never worked in either of those fields. But I, in a way, was the archetype of the scientist in my family so that my parents could have lay claim to the story that they had an engineer, an economist, and a scientist in their children. And that was a really important part of both who they were and what values they had, but also a very, as I said earlier, a, bil a very strong ability to demonstrate that we didn't come to this country to rely on social services. We actually came to this country to make a difference. And that's a very, yeah, so there's that parallel. And I think that we carry those weights of those stories with us. It's a bit of a joke within most immigrant communities that uh, particularly, you know, Asian, South Asian, Arab families, that your parents expect you to be one of three things, a doctor, a lawyer, or an engineer. And uh, my father just gave us one option. You had to be a doctor. That was it. And it didn't make a lot of sense to me growing up. But as, uh, but as I got older, he, what I understood is that he went through a great deal of difficulty to get us through life in this country. They moved here for our education. That was the reason why they moved. And they wanted their children to be successful and to be contributing members of society. But he also went through a great deal of discrimination. Both my parents actually went through a great deal of discrimination working in, in the workplace. Very graphic stories of you know, my mother being told she couldn't be hired because she wore the hijab uh, and that off-put customers. Uh, to my father being fired on several occasions as a manager and as a, a very successful and leading award-winning manager because he hired people of color and was told specifically to stop doing that and hiring more white people. So my father said something to me that has always stuck, stuck with me. He said, you need to choose a job where you're not dispensable. You need to choose a job where people will always need you. And he's like, people didn't always need me so I could easily be fired. He's like, people will always need a doctor. And so when I went into psychology, that was a very frightening thing for my father because he didn't know what that meant. He didn't know if there was any potential success there or guaranteed success. It was a risk and a risk he didn't want me to take. And I remember when I was in university, I got a Department of Psychology mug. And I was, I was living at home at that time. I would keep it at the back of the cupboard in the kitchen because I know if it was at the front, like I was very proud of what I did. Right. Um, but if it was at the front and he saw it, it would frustrate him every morning. I mean, now he's very proud of what I do. And he tells everybody who comes into the store what I do. And, but it speaks to that level of stress and that discomfort. And there's research that supports that this impact of this pressure of immigrants choosing professional careers or, or pushing towards success lasts three generations. And it speaks, I think, to that pressure to perform. And I, I think more specifically, it speaks to a fear of not belonging, a fear of being cast out, this fear of not being accepted. And that is a fear I think many immigrants in particular uh, people of color face because they're so afraid of being excluded. And what I said earlier is that I'm constantly reminded that if I didn't walk around, you know, not that I do, but if, I, if I'd walked around with a shirt that said doctor, it might change because my privilege would be on my, on my shirt, but I don't do that. And so the moment I step out of my office, my privilege changes. You know, that if I'm, my, if I'm in my office, uh, I still don't get the privilege where people would make the attempt to pronounce my last name uh, or even type it out. But, but there still would be that, 
that sense of, and not that I'm looking for this, but there would be a sense of courtesy. And that's not always afforded when you step out of that role. These are the stories that build professionals when you come from immigrant families or when you're a person of color that most people don't talk about. And the research actually now even still supports this. And we talk about a gender pay gap. What we are noticing is that research supports this concept of a pay gap between ethnicities and that people of color tend to make far less than white people in Canada. And when we've tested this out with people like me, people who've lived here and been educated here, we're still noticing about a 10 to 15% difference between people of color and white people. Which is just wrong. Yeah. But, but I, think, I, think what it do, I think what that tells us is that there is that, that fear, that, that need to succeed above all else, that, that pressure our parents put on us to become doctors, lawyers, or engineers is based in a realistic perception that the world is not fair and that we are at a disadvantage because we come from immigrant families and or the added layer of being people of color. Right. And as you're talking about that, I can relate to that from the point of view of statistics around how much women earn uh, mm -hmm. collectively mm -hmm. compared to men, but you can also see the gradations. So a white woman, a Latina woman, a black woman, and it almost seems like, as when I've, I've looked at the statistics, they're accompanied by photographs, and it would almost be pretty clear to see that the darker the skin color, the more the gap in pay. But the other thing I remember reading, this is years ago I read this, and it was so interesting to me. It was a study that was done around how what they call the feminization of the medical profession and the average salaries of doctors in some countries went down the more that women entered these professions and the one that was quite striking was in Russia where the doctors who are now primarily women were earning the same amount as the nurses were earning because I guess it was seen that a male doctor, for some reason, was more of a doctor than a woman doctor. And you know, now I'm, I'm feeling like I'm gonna get on a soapbox, so I'm just gonna jump on and, and say jump this. On. I really jump struggle with us, this idea, and I'll talk about it in terms of gender, where we still feel the need in some parts of society to call out that someone is a woman writer or a woman doctor or a woman, you know, fill in the blank. Because the standard is that if you say a doctor, and this is true, I think for many people, you put, you know, you say like, you know, imagine a doctor. I think the vast majority of people might still put a picture of a man in their head. Now, mm -hmm. I might be wrong there, but I know it still is that way for me. And I think there's this, you know, this exercise I've done in an unconscious bias workshop where someone's telling a story and they don't tell you the gender of the doctor. And at the very end, they say to people, so describe the doctor. And, you know, eight out of 10 people will describe the doctor as a man, even though the story had no gender in it. And, you know, I, I think there's some parallels between, and they're not direct, but I think there are parallels between my experience as a woman in this society, and I'm white, with, I think, and I, I don't, you know, I feel very delicate and, and a bit unsure in saying this, but I think there are some parallels between my experience in regards to what I would call white male culture, and some would even go as far as call it, you know, male supremacy, white male supremacy, uh, and the experiences of people of color in both genders. No, absolutely. I think there are definitely parallels, uh, and I think we can't ignore them, and I think, I think those parallels, although, although I think they operate on different levels and I think there's a hierarchy, I think those, those parallels are what 
kind of pull us together to have a sense of empathy and understanding. That's why you and I are doing this podcast together. I think we can demonstrate those bridges that connect us because it's that level of empathy that can allow us to obtain a better understanding that would change our behavior that might engage people differently, both in society, but also professionally as well, too, when, we be, when we're able to see that. Now, that being said, I, I don't think people are looking for pity. You know, this is, this is not a podcast for us to talk about feeling sorry for, but more being aware of the privileges that people carry and the barriers that people face when they come from certain backgrounds. Because if we're not aware of that, we can't make the changes that we need to. Yeah. And, you know, so interesting. I'm just thinking back to your story you told a few minutes ago about the potluck and this person explaining to you what a potluck is. Well, I'm curious, I would be curious to know if this person actually knew where the word potluck came from, which is an indigenous term, right? The potlatch, which is a gift giving ceremony uh, that involves food. And I don't have all the details on it. I'm, I don't, I'm not up to like I'm, I, I don't, you know, shamefully, I live in Canada. I don't know enough about Indigenous communities, but I do know that that's where that word came yes. from. And it's so interesting to me that, again, if we look at language, like I think I've, I've said this, if not to you, to other people, that when you really want to in, insult somebody, you use words that are either about people of color or about that involve women's sexuality or women's sexual organs in very pejorative ways. And we, we have entrenched in language ideas about what's more valuable and what we, I guess, uh, consider to be the standard of Mm -hmm. how you're supposed to be. Sorry, I'm sounding I'm sounding iffy or I'm sounding a bit hesitant because I'm thinking now about being in the workplace and the idea of how behavior is codified in the workplace around what me well, you know, we talked about this a bit earlier, but what it means to be a professional. And I know for some women, you have to kind of act more like a man in order to be taken seriously. Well, the pants suit. Um, yeah. I, I mean, what are your thoughts on that? I think colonialism has had a really strong impact on how we think of what we consider to be professional, what we consider to be civilized. I, I give this story, I, get, I tell this story quite often whenever I do a lot of the trainings that I do. But I, I grew up in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania, and my family's originally Zanzibari, and so they come from a colonial culture. And uh, I talk about my late grandfather being very upset with me to have a beard on a regular basis because he felt it was uncivilized and it showed a lack of discipline. And it's interesting because he took that I think, from the colonized culture. He got a job with the British doing some accounts and was so proud of himself for that, that he adopted a lot of those values. And until he died, would always be upset with me because I kept a beard because it didn't reflect those British values. Now, more importantly than that, it's interesting, on his wedding day, he wore a suit, not a kanzu or a a thawb, which was traditional. Uh, He wore a British black suit, white shirt, black bow tie. And my father still believe that a well-dressed man was somebody in khakis and a button-down shirt, which is very British. And I didn't realize I carried this with me too, but one of my favorite things in life is a well-tailored tweed suit. You know, like I feel like I've made it. Like when I, I actually finally bought a tailored like tweed suit, like just like last year. And the weird thing is in my head is I felt that I made it. I've got a lot of really fancy thobes and kanzu sitting in my closet that didn't cost me much to make, but, but to have that, and I wonder how much of that was me 
having that internalized colonized mentality that that's what I felt it took. Yeah. yeah and what you're proud. saying is what does it, again, we're coming back to this idea of what does it mean to be a professional? Yeah. Right. Like what, so professional acts a certain way, a professional dresses a certain dresses way. A certain way. Like we're, we're all kind of costumed into different roles. Like the idea of being, I don't know, like what we would consider a professional dressed in something that we would consider unprofessional, which could be basically traditional clothing of a culture that's other than Western. I'm thinking now of, of people I know who are from different countries in Africa and this is an interesting thing for me because, I mean, many of the countries, I've been to Africa a few times. I've been to Ghana. I've been to Rwanda. I've been to Morocco, although people from sub-Saharan Africa tell me that Morocco is not uh, in Africa, which I, I find mm -hmm. another really interesting thing of how we describe what Africa means. What Africa means. You go, again, language, right? What, what does something mean? What do the words mean? But I worked in an organization in which there were many employees who were from different countries in Africa, and the clothing they wore would be considered by Western professional standards to be very bright and very colorful and not something that you would necessarily wear to the office. Mm -hmm. uh, and then when I was in Africa, I was the one who stood out because there I was wearing my bland navy and black and, you know, one-tone colors. And I felt I stood out for looking very different than what was the prevailing culture around me, the prevailing professional culture around me. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that varies across different parts in Africa and Tanzania. You know, it still is. If you wear the suit and tie, you look like you made it. That's the clothes. It's not that you couldn't wear anything else, but that was still perceived with a sense of professionality. And there's remnants of uh, colonialism that exist, but not just in countries, I think, in our minds. And so I think it, as people move forward and as what we take from this discussion, I think we need to consider where we get a lot of our thinking from. You know, what do we consider professional? Do we believe that certain people have equal rights when they don't? Do people think that people got to certain places in the same level of ease as other people? And it's also important to remember that privilege doesn't mean that certain people who have the privilege didn't struggle. It just means that there were greater struggles based on people's ethnicities and cultures and immigrant statuses that people had to get through that were greater than what those other people had. Yeah. And I think what you're saying speaks to this idea of the hierarchy of struggle, that we can't ignore the smaller struggles because other people have struggled more. Yes. There's a story, like all of us have a story of something that was difficult that we overcame. Some are have either more stories or more difficulty, but there's no hierarchy that my story means less than your mm -hmm. story. It's a different story. Um, so, and I think that's, that's something we need to be careful. Well, I feel I need to be careful about to not minimize the things that have been difficult in my life because other people have had more difficult experiences than me. Absolutely. So one of the, one of the purposes of our podcast was to start talking about the experiences of different people and so if you're listening to us right now and you're on Twitter or Instagram, you know, and you've, and you've had this different perspective, rather than now staying silent and remaining quote unquote professional, why don't you share a little element about your story, about your immigration story, your story as a woman, as a person of color that impacted your work story? I think, I think people would love to hear that. We'd love to hear that. 
Um, so you're on social media, share that with us. Uh, and it might be as simple as a photograph and a brief little blurb. We'd love to hear it. Tag us on that. Lisa, what's our Instagram handle? At different.people.podcast. You can find us on Twitter as well too. Mine is at D-R-R-A-B-D-U-L-R-E-H-M-A-N. Lisa? And I am at L-I-S-A-S underscore coach, C-O-A-C-H. So let's all come out of the cultural closet and talk a little bit about who we truly are so we can bring our true selves to work. Because when we do that together, it informs all of us about an experience and might change what we consider to be professional. Yeah. And just as we're ending here, Raymond, can you tell me something that makes you hopeful about how having these conversations actually moves the dial? Well, you and I are having that. I, I, I mean, I think that speaks to it. I think the fact that we're having this, I think that uh, you and I are friends. I think that to me is the hope that we're moving this, this forward, this cause, this moving the needle, so to speak. Yeah. I think that in and of itself is a good sign. Yeah, because I would say that in knowing you and in having these conversations, a whole other world has opened up to me that I would have no knowledge of or no experience of if A, I didn't know you, but B, that we didn't step into these conversations about, interestingly, what we think often are differences, but we discover underneath that are some pretty surprising similarities. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I think more people can find those bridges, I think, if they start to have these conversations. Thank you for spending time with us. To learn more about our work and listen to other episodes, please visit differentpeople.ca. Post-production services provided by jonathanlay.net. And thanks to Blue Eye Music for our music theme. You can reach us all through the contact information in the show notes and new episodes of the Different People podcast are uploaded regularly to Spotify, iTunes, and Google Play. Please join us again. And until soon.